Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is your host, Randy Kim. I can't believe I have done several episodes so far. It's been an amazing journey so far in this early stage of my podcasting life. So a big thank you to everyone for giving this podcast a chance. So anyways, I am thrilled to introduce to you my next guest for this episode. Her name is Joy Messenger. Joy and I have been wonderful friends for the past six years. We met through I2I, which is an Asian Pacific Islander, LGBTQQIA grassroots group based on the Chicago North Side. I've always been amazed by the work that Joy has been doing in activism, whether it's been in adoptee issues, reproductive justice, queer trans rights, API advocacy, disability justice, police brutality, and so much more. We sat down together and discussed her personal experiences being a part of these movements. She talked in depth about finding better understanding of her intersectional identities and history. We discussed the importance of self-care in activism and advocacy spaces. And, of course, I spoke about Joy's favorite topic, basketball. Joy is a devoted NBA and WNBA fan, as well as a North Carolina Tar Heels fan. However, she's not a fan of another rival team from North Carolina. I'm not allowed to say it. Her love of basketball even included conversations on women inclusion in the NBA. So anyways, I really, really hope you enjoyed this episode with Joy, and thank you. everyone this is uh, randy kim from the bun me chronicles podcast so i am here with my good friend joy how are you today hi everyone thank you so much for being on this podcast i am so looking forward to our conversation today and before i in- have you introduce yourself i actually wanted to share a little story of how joy and i met <laughs> <laughs> so it was i believe the summer of 2013 I was invited to a party by uh, one of our friends, and it was a potluck. At least that's what I thought was a potluck. And I walked in, and there was a group of uh, queer trans folks. It was a do I to I, I believe. Uh, at that, I don't know if it was an I to I event, but I know that there was some kind of special seminar going on. As I was sitting down, I met joy and i remember joy being so enthusiastic very eager and i was wondering uh, why she's so happy yes exactly i was wondering why (laughs) you were so happy and then you were there to present something and that something turned out to be you had a backpack i believe and out comes the different kinds of dildos I think you had some vibrators too, if I recall. But I remember you were actually giving this, well, I didn't know it then, but you were giving this presentation about about um, dildos. And I was just sitting there being my Midwestern self, just kind of like, what is going on here? And I remembered our group 
they were just fascinated and really into it. They were just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, this is amazing. And they were like asking questions and I'm just like sitting there and kind of in shock. And I'm like, this is awkward. And to give you context, I was still kind of coming to terms with my own sexuality. I mean, I was about to turn 30, I believe. And most of my experiences have been in cis hetero spaces for a good chunk of my life but to that point so that was how i met joy and <laughs> it was the visual the visuals of dodos that i have never thought i would be walking into and i would end up learning quite a bit about those uh those alternative devices <laughs> so yeah any thoughts on that any thoughts on that <laughs> It's so funny that you remember it so vividly because I like I remember meeting you at an event for Eye to Eye, which is visible to Invincible, the LGBTQ um, Asian group in Chicago uh, that I used to be part of the leadership of and that Randy was a member of. Um, but I don't remember like that specific uh, like like dildo and sex demonstration <laughs> but I also am am like like I believe you that that was totally happening because I would give random like safer sex demos kind of everywhere I was and like definitely would carry around all the supplies I needed like with me all the time oh my goodness. so it's totally unshocking to me that like that would have been a way that we would have met. And it's a way that I actually have met a lot of people where they're like, oh yeah, I like was in this space and you were talking about condoms or sex or like blowjobs. Because uh, that, yeah, in my former life, I was a sex educator. So yeah. yeah <laughs> well, so I'm glad it didn't uh, scare you away too much. <laughs> No, it didn't. I just remembered. I'm like, wow, people are really fascinated. And I'm like, I don't I did not know what to say in the conversation. So, yeah. And as it turns out, I turned out just fine. So after like yeah. several years, so nothing. You sure did. And our friendship is all the better for it. Aw, thank you. <laughs> so, which kind of segues into, yeah, if you can uh, introduce yourself, because I know now we just... Now that you've talked about being a former sex educator, so yeah, that kind of goes into this little segue of uh, of uh, the work that you've been doing, and I would like to hear um, how you would. Well, I can't even talk at the moment, but but to introduce yourself and to uh, share um, the work that you've been doing. Yeah. So I yeah, I'll share a little bit, and I know that you are probably gonna ask me to talk about it a little bit more. Um, but I am uh, a nine-year Chicagoan, uh, originally from the rural Northeast. And uh, I refer to myself as an organizer of uh, spreadsheets, people, and money, um, because I really like to do the logistical work of movement building and the behind the scenes work of movement building and social justice. Um, it's super underrated, I feel like in a lot of different ways, um, but it's so, so important. And it's, 
I'm happy to like be out of the spotlight, um, just in the background, kind of entering data or sorting through a spreadsheet. Um, I also uh, do some organizing and advocacy and activism um, in Chicago now and have um, for the past like 10 or 12 years, um, both in Chicago and then in North Carolina where I lived before I moved to Chicago. Um, and then uh, an organizer of money, I work in social justice philanthropy and have been doing grassroots fundraising um, for organizations and movements that I really believe in um, for the past decade or so as well. Um, and really believe in um, organizing people who have money to um, be in community with people who are seeking money and knowing that like those two designations are not mutually exclusive um, so that uh, we can be resourcing all of the great work that needs to happen in order for us to build a better world and like build the world that we want to see. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about like what I do and what I spend my time doing. And then um, I identify in lots of different ways um, as a Korean person, um, as a, an adoptee and a transnational transracial adoptee, um, as a disabled person, as a cisgender femme, um, as a woman of color, um, as a Northeasterner, even though I've been living in the Midwest <laughs> for almost a decade. Uh, I strongly identify as a cat mom. Um, I love my cat so much. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's just a little bit about me. Wow, that's that's incredible because you've shared uh, so much of your work, which sounds hella exhausting. And <laughs> uh, the idea of spreadsheets is honestly my like, worst nightmare. I mean, I'm a Gemini, so the idea of doing spreadsheets is a kill. I was going to say killjoy, but that's not exactly the word I want to be using. So no, it's 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 incredible. Like like the like the different intersections that you've carried and and also how it has led you to work in these different movements so yeah from being involved in these movements what are the um what are some of the lessons that you had to learn that no one warned you about and what were the challenges that you saw within these movements and I know you've talked a little bit about uh, some of these movements that you've been a part of, but I was wondering if you can kind of at least share some of the uh, the lessons and and what really maybe going back further, what got you into them in the first place? Yeah, so like what got me into like the the social justice work that I've been doing? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> um, so it's really interesting because I grew up in a really rural part of New York State, um, the part of New York State that is like across Lake Ontario from Toronto. So it's actually closer to both Canada and Pennsylvania than it is to New York City. Uh, and there's so much of New York State that is not New York City. Uh, but I, yeah, so I grew up in like that rural area. Um, and because I was a transnational and transracial adoptee, um, I was raised in a white family and was the only non-white person um, in my immediate family. And so I think that those two things, even before I knew any language related to race 
or racism or prejudice or discrimination. Like it, I felt different and I felt like on the edge, um, kind of at the margins, even though I didn't like when I was six and I was in school and like, I was one of only a few Asian kids in my school. Um, I didn't know what it meant to be like on the margins or marginalized, but I just knew that I was different. Um, and as I was coming up through high school, I realized a passion for um, feminism, which at that time and in the context I was living in, um, so at that time in the in the mid to late 90s and in the context I was living in, in rural Western New York and in the family I was raised in, which was a Christian cons conservative Christian family, um, that meant like being very excited about people like Hillary Clinton, who uh, it's like at that point was like preparing to run for Senate and was seen very much as like the antithesis of everything that like the people I grew up around believed in, um, that like she was literally seen as the antichrist, um, which yeah, really I think informed a lot about like how I approached eventually when she ran for president and kind of having, um, having knowledge of like how lots of people who were not in coastal urban centers, like actually really felt about her. Um, so yeah, so I, I was a baby feminist. Uh, I listened to a lot of Indigo Girls. I listened to a lot of Rage Against the Machine. I remember like reading the liner notes and then looking I at love them. Rage Against the Machine. I <laughs> saw like, them at looking, Lollapalooza. I saw them at Lollapalooza on... in 2008. And that show nearly, actually, I think that show was the reason why I became claustrophobic because <laughs> I got shoved and yeah. pushed. And I also don't blame them for not wanting to tour again because of the the fan base that they were very, I can't speak for them, but it feels like there was a lot of distrust with the fan base and not understanding the message behind their music. Yeah. So like their music was like extremely radical um, for like what was being, especially for what was being played on like mainstream radio um, at that time, or even like mainstream alternative radio. Um, so I would like read the liner notes of like these Indigo Girls albums and these Rage Against Machine albums and um, like Wiz <laughs> Fair albums. And then like, yeah. especially for like the more political music, kind of like look up, go into like Juno and Netscape <laughs> and look up all the wow. references and like learn about what that meant. So like that was the way that like I learned about the American Indian movement. And that was the way that I learned about um, the military industrial complex um, while I was in high school because those things were not being taught to me mm -hmm. in school. Like that was the way that I learned about like queerness and and lesbians and even though i did not realize that like that was part of who i was until um like a little bit later i was still like oh like this is a thing and it's okay and like seeing the indigo girls who like came from uh you know like the small college town in georgia and like they were out and they were queer and like that was okay um so i feel like music in that way was a huge outlet for me. And it also politicized me um, because I have very few outlets to become politicized um, in in those, in those the time and space and family that I was mm. living in, um, like yeah. in that context. And so like, that's what got me interested in social justice. So I became really, really passionate about 
the HIV and AIDS crisis and ending it um, because I came of age during the time of Ryan White and yes. also like in popular culture, like during the time of Rent, which looking back now and like thinking about it, it's like a musical and <laughs> just a story. There's, there's so many yeah. problems. Uh, there's so many things that are really complicated about it, which I can like deconstruct now because I've like learned so many other things since. Um, but also, you know, when you're like a 15 year old non-white kid, like being raised in a conservative Christian household, like mm -hmm. things like Rent, things like Elton John, things like learning about Ryan White, like these were huge influences for me. Yeah. So when I went to college, I started doing HIV and AIDS activism. I also, I was a sophomore in college when 9-11 happened. And so um, I got really heavily involved in, in the anti-war movement. Um, and then as I was thinking more about the anti-war movement and the military industrial complex, connecting that to how I ended up coming to the U.S., um, like kind of made it all feel very... Uh, like very real for me because um, the international adoption uh, infrastructure developed after uh, the Korean War um, as a result of the Korean War, which was part of like what happened on the Korean Peninsula in the 1950s was like part of U.S. foreign policy related to like their desire to like globally eradicate communism. Um, so like the reason that I'm here as an adoptee is I can directly link that back to like the US military. And so then thinking about being a young person, like mm. fighting back against the military, fighting back against more war. Um, and we've seen over the past couple of decades, like just how much US foreign policy has impacted adoption, has impacted migration and the flow of people. We see that right now, like at the border. Um, so all of those things kind of got connected. I continued to do sexual health and sexual rights work, um, relate, both related to HIV and AIDS, but then also thinking more broadly about um, like feminism and abortion and reproductive justice. Um, and I've always worked with young people. Um, and I think it's because as a young person, like I was constantly searching for my place, um, constantly searching for where I fit in and where I felt like home. Uh, and love to be able to work with young people who are also kind of searching for those things, figuring out where they fit in the world, finding their voice, getting also getting politicized. Um, it just, it feels really, really powerful for me. So yeah, that's kind of brought me up to everything I've been, been doing since then that's related to reproductive justice and abortion access and um, working to like get liberation and freedom for LGBTQ communities, especially queer and trans people of color and especially queer and trans young people of color. Um, and how that, yeah, how all of those things are connected and they're all like really, really important close parts of my life. And like the doing that work as part of like the world that I wanna create um, for people who have my identities or have my experiences who are coming up after me um, that like leaving the world in a space where like they don't have to fight as hard um, in order to survive the same way that I did, that like the world will be a little bit freer for them. Um, 
and the world will be a little bit freer for me and my people too. Um, so that was like a really long <laughs> roundabout okay. answer. Um, but I, I, yeah, I feel really lucky that I did, I was able to find outlets for these ideas that were budding in me, like as a, as a young person, as a teenager who didn't necessarily have access to like political education or school groups or community groups um, in the same way that a lot of the young people that I work with now living in a huge urban center, like have access to all the time. Yeah, you know, I, I like reflecting back on what you were saying because I remember when we were talking about music, um, one of my biggest influences was Janet Jackson, as you uh, already know. Um, Rhythm Nation album introduced me to the racism, the social inequities, and Velvet Rope, which was released in 97, was the album that introduced me to queerness. And this was the time of, like, during, still in the AIDS crisis, right? And, and I remember that that album was what made me start to realize that the other side, the queerness spectrum, didn't seem as terrifying as what mainstream media, what my community uh, made it out to be. So, you know, you and I are about the close in age. We're about maybe a couple months apart. And all these experiences that you shared growing up uh, was very similar to how I grew up in Westmont, Illinois, uh, which is about 40 minutes away from the city. It's in DuPage County, which was then uh, one of the top 10 conservative counties in the U.S. for a long period of time. Um, this is the time of Henry Hyde, who is from DuPage County, <clears throat> Dennis Hastert, who is comfortably rotting in jail as we speak. Ah, um, Henry Hyde! Yeah, people forget that yes. like he was from Illinois. And that, like, By county. yeah, Illinois yes. gave us that, like, a representative of Illinois gave us the Hyde Amendment. <laughs> yeah, so that was, <laughs> yeah, so growing up during those times, I remembered, uh, you know, being so sheltered and learning that queerness was a threat. And I felt like I had to be homophobic to survive. And also with being one of the few Asian Americans in my own school, it was hard for me to connect with anyone that looked like me and that I could talk to about some of the problems or some of the trauma that my parents had faced, you know, being refugees. So growing up in your environment um, with your family being very conservative, Christians and your school and the community that you were in, did you feel like you had to play the role of being a part of them to survive as you were still trying to explore um, explore ideas and um, and uh, different cultures that you were not introduced to? Yeah, that's such an interesting question because I think for me, it wasn't necessarily that I like had to act a certain way in order to survive, but I literally like my my reality was so small because of how controlled like in my family and in my upbringing, um, how controlled my access to media and information was. So it's not even that like I was making a conscious choice to like act in a certain way. It's that like I didn't know any 
any differently. And I think that that is reflective of the ways that many people grow up. And uh, it also speaks to me, like my my kind of trajectory into social, social justice just always reminds me of the ways that like education and exposure, exposure and awareness and visibility can really radicalize someone that like actually political education as a strategy can work. Um, because like I grew up in a household that um, like had really complicated feelings about abortion and was like very squarely uh, like very anti-gay and super pro-military. Um, like my father was in uh, was in the army um, stationed in the Pentagon during the Vietnam War and then went into the reserves and was in the reserves for like 20 years. And so he was like very, very proud to like have that military um, experience as part of his background and it colored like his entire uh, outlook on life as well as definitely as well as his politics and his like belief in many ways in gender in like gender roles although he, although in other ways uh, like he was very like warm and tender but it was like it was like the military was had this such like a distinct hold on like who he was as a person um so like yeah that was the environment that I was growing up in and I didn't I didn't know better and I didn't know different because my parents were so overprotective they completely controlled like the music that I listened to and the television that I was watching um in a way where like when I went to college uh it was it was mind blowing for me. And I like, didn't even go to a school that was that radical. <laughs> like the school that I went to would still, like I would consider it like still pretty conservative. Um, what school was that? So it was called Nazareth College. Okay. Um, it was a, a tiny liberal <laughs> arts school in Rochester, New York, which is like the closest city to where I grew up. And, um, you know, there were definitely professors who were radical and liberal, um, which is like where I got that education. But like as an institution, um, it wasn't necessarily um, the the way that I've seen other colleges operate. Um, so, yeah, I remember distinctly. So I always think about this. I remember distinctly uh, that like in my house growing up like my mother was obsessed with watching rush limbaugh um because it was gross. it was back when like he used to broadcast his radio show like on on tv um and i don't know if he does anymore um i actually because i don't follow his career and like don't care about him anymore like don't kind of don't know what he's up to until like i see a headline that's like something incredibly inflammatory um but he yeah so like his show was on all the time oh. in my house and I didn't really like listen to it too much but I would listen to like what my mother would say about it or like how she agreed with it or like all of those things and didn't realize that like that was actually like so 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 conservative that like at that point in like the early to mid 90s it wasn't like that was still so far right it wasn't even uh like the Republican Party in in many ways like it, it was related to like the reagan era like the conservative conservatism of the reagan area but in other ways like the republican party was like still not as far right 
um, as Rush Limbaugh. Um, so like realizing that, realizing that like Rush Limbaugh and Fox News were actually like so, so, so conservative, were like those were things that happened like when I got to college. Um, and yeah, so I had to like unlearn a lot. Um, and so when I hear you ask, like, you know, were there things that I was doing to survive? I think that there were related to like my mental health and like being able to express my emotions and being able to like feel affirmed as um, an Asian person um, and as like a, a really strong-willed young woman. Um, but it wasn't necessarily that I had to engage in um, in like more conservative views in order to survive. It's just that like I literally didn't know anything different from that. Mm. Yeah, because I remembered uh, I started to unlearn some of those conservative ideas that I was growing up in high school and even community college when I went to college at DuPage um, the first two years. And growing to UIC, which is the University of Illinois at Chicago, it was when I started to learn more about the anti-war. It was like during the time of the Iraq-Afghanistan war. Uh, and I remembered uh, being at UIC, it allowed me to connect with diff different diversities, which I did not have much of uh, up until my 20s. And being in these different environments, like I know what you've kind of alluded to, started to, I guess, this started to crack, um, crack the foundation that we were brought up, right? And um, now, as you started to progress more into your own politics, um, and and I'm sorry if it gets a little, it gets more into the personal uh, areas here, but for your parents, when they started to see where you were heading towards, and you were likely at the no point of no the the likely at um, the no point in return, what was that experience like when you had to share? your own ideas when you started thinking for yourself and when you realize when they realized that they can no longer influence um, your beliefs? Oh, that's such a powerful question. Um, yeah, that's like really powerful and so deep. Uh, and I was actually thinking about so this is going to connect, I promise. But yeah, I was okay. thinking about yeah. <laughs> the other night. Uh, I was just like, you know, scrolling through Instagram and one of the the like hottest takes about Instagram right now is like people who are mental health providers, like having a really huge Instagram presence and how um, from a lot of people who can't access mental health care, that's been really, really helpful for them because mental health care is so hard to access in uh, the U.S. for lots of different reasons. Um, and I was thinking and like in that moment as I was scrolling through Instagram that like, wow, my childhood and like my being a teenager and even being um, in my early 20s would have been so much different had I had access to like this sort of validation or this sort oh, yes. of information oh. about mental health. Because I think that um, like I, so I grew up in in an environment that was super enmeshed and like didn't really have the words or the understanding to 
realize that until later. Um, and so when it was even before, it was like years and years before I came out, even before I came out, like when I started to learn new and different ideas that kind of went against the the status quo of what I had been raised in. So the fact that I was a feminist, um, the fact that I was really starting to become adamant about the fact that I'm not white, um, the fact that I was talking about things like white privilege and uh, privilege and power were, it was, it was very controversial <laughs> in in my family and like when I would come home from college and like talk about these things and um, I think about an idea that is you know for so many different communities of color seems very basic like that Peggy McIntosh article about unpacking the invisible knapsack and like I was talking about that with my parents and um, like they were just really upset they thought that um, like me gaining this education and like me uh, trying, like asserting my Asianness was like a slap in the face to them, um, which at the time, like I didn't have the language to know like how that was related to like boundaries and being enmeshed and like having <laughs> just like having kind of like a swirly uh, porous like family relationship. Um, but it like, yeah, it was really challenging and it was really hard. And I think, uh, had that not happened, then like when I finally did come out, like it may not have had the impact that it did, but it, but like when I did come out, it, it just was one more way that I was like asserting how I was different from my parents, um, which I had always felt different from them, yeah. um, that like, I was, I was a baby feminist in high school and like I looked different than them and I had different thoughts than them. Um, and I was interested in like being a part of the world in different ways than them, but it didn't necessarily mean that like I thought they were wrong or bad, um, but they treated me that way. And like, I carry a lot of shame and guilt, uh, like a, a ton of guilt about that. Um, and wished in a lot of ways that like I it could just be different and like I could just think a way that would that they would accept um and yeah and so then when I came out um and I've been estranged from them since like a couple years after I came out um but it was it was just like a lot because at that point I was I was very very out with my sexuality. Um, I was protesting the war and like really, really public about that. Um, and I was, you know, like call it, I was, I knew that I wasn't white. Um, and my parents had always said like, we just see you as like another type of white. Um, oh, and wow. so, yeah, <laughs> like that's a whole other podcast episode on like yeah. <laughs> transracial adoption. Um, and like how to, how to uh, coach parents on things to maybe not say to their children um, so that they can raise them in a like really pluralistic world well. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was difficult um, and it created a schism before, uh, before my queerness um, 
created a bigger schism. And I, I used to tell people like, you know, back when uh, it was closer to the time that I was estranged from my parents when I was like in my early 20s that um, I think that if I had ended up being a log cabin Republican that like it actually would have been fine. Um, and like my my parents would probably even say now that like they don't care if I'm queer. They just don't want me to like be so public about it. Um, and they don't want me to like flaunt my life around. Um, and yeah, so I, I truly believe too late that, like, for that. <laughs> I know, right? I'm I'm so flaunty, I'm so extra. Um, you met me while I was doing dildo demonstrations with condoms. Uh, yeah, if I if I was just a little bit more politically conservative and uh, lived my life in a more conservative way. Um, or safe way, you know. Yeah, yeah. Or And, like, didn't rock the boat. Like, that was always a thing that I was raised with. Like, we don't rock the boat. We believe strongly in the government. We believe strongly in the military. We believe strongly in, like, these, these like, institutions that are here to keep us safe. Um, while at the same time, like, knowing, yeah, while at the same time, like, having so much information in the world like it just didn't always click but mm. yeah yeah so i know um i was just thinking uh i was just kind of processing uh, what you were talking about but just also leading me to uh the next uh follow-up is you know being an adoptee um as you were carving out your own identity um did you start becoming very curious about your um, your biological parents, and I know that you have um, been coming, that you've been visiting Korea the last few times. Uh, if that's, I know you visited Korea before, and you had uh, connected with uh, your biological or your birth, uh, your birth mother, I should say. And I was wondering if you were able to, like, you know, share some of that experience, but also, also, when did the curiosity to know those roots? come into play mm. yeah so um I actually was as a, a child and growing up I was super super lucky that I grew up in like a geographically dense area for transnational adoption specifically from Korea so there was an adoption agency called love the children which was based in Quakerstown, Pennsylvania, which is uh, like in in that like middle area of Pennsylvania that people will, re will refer to as Pennsylvania, or in wow. it's like just north of um, Scranton, Wilkesbury, which people uh, will have known Scranton if they ever watched The Office, um, which I never watched or got into but i just know that it takes place in scranton and like scranton is a place that's like you know three hours from where i grew up um so yeah so quakerstown pennsylvania um love the children was an agency that was there and it placed lots of um korean adoptees in uh northern pennsylvania as well as like western and central new york so i when i was growing up from the time I was like three or four years old to when I was in high school, went to um, a Korean culture camp for Korean adoptees. It was called Camp Chingu, which Chingu right. is is <laughs> the Korean word for friend. So it was literally camp friend, um, <laughs> which sounds, it just sounds so much better in Korean. Um, and really got to have like that cultural experience 
Um, which to me is like also super wild considering all of the other messages that I got from like people that I grew up with or grew up near as well as within my family related to race. So it was very much like, oh, it's like connecting me to my culture in this really important way. So like I learned all about Korean food and I learned um, the Korean alphabet and Hangul and we would do like Korean dance and uh, we would do, I learned Taekwondo. Um, nice. And so like that was a really, really central part of my childhood. It was something that I did every single summer. Um, and then I became um, a junior counselor and then a counselor um, for other Korean adoptees. Um, it was a huge, huge part of like my non-school identity. Uh, but also, yeah, like it was, so I feel very, very lucky in those ways that I had access to that. Cause I know there's a lot of Korean adoptees that, um, like they will go their entire childhood without ever meeting another adoptee, without ever meeting another Korean person, or maybe without ever meeting another Asian person. Um, so yeah, so like that was really impactful and really beautiful. And I think gave me this understanding of like who I was as an adoptee, but didn't necessarily, um, have a critique of adoption, which I got later. So when I was growing up, um, for like a bunch of reasons that are super complicated, I um, didn't have a huge interest in uh, in seeking out my birth parents. Um, it had to do with some uh, dynamics like within my immediate family. It had to do with just like my lack of, of um, interest like in general. Um, and I, I actually became interested in it after, in seeking out my birth parents and going back to Korea, um, after reading a book by Jane Jung Trinka, who is a Korean adoptee who has um, rematriated. So she has like moved back to Korea and has, um, has been doing um, adoptee activism and um, like single mother activism, reproductive justice activism in, um, in Korea. And so reading her memoirs, there are two of them. Um, one is called Fugitive Visions and Adoptees Return to Korea. So it's the first one I read. And then the other one is called The Language of Blood. Um, those two books were really, really impactful for me. And I'd say that like those, those two books, in addition to um, Asian American Dreams by Helen Zia, are like the most impactful um, books by uh, East Asian women that I have read because they completely like change the trick, like intellectually and emotionally, like change the trajectory of how I thought of myself as an Asian, an Asian American woman. Um, so it was after reading Jane Zhang Trinka's memoirs that I decided to go back to Korea. Um, I went on a motherland tour, which um, is a common name for like tours of folks who are all adoptees and their families who go back to Korea to like learn um, about Korea, to uh, visit their former adoption agency and to like potentially meet their birth parents. And I chose to do that um, because I was not experienced at traveling abroad. Like I was not a young person that like grew up taking trips to Europe. Um, I grew up next to Canada, but like at the time 
um, before 9-11, like you didn't even need a passport to go across the border to Canada. Um, You needed you needed to say that you had a copy of your birth certificate and like sometimes they would ask for it and sometimes they wouldn't. So like we would go on class trips to Toronto all the time. Um, cause they're so much closer than New York city. Uh, so yeah, I like didn't grow up having a passport, didn't grow up, um, in a family that like took trips abroad. So it was, I wanted to, um, I was like nervous about going by myself cause I didn't know the language. So this was a way that like I could go, um, in a group of people and also like have that experience of like someone like setting things up for you just a little bit. Um, I, I still feel really complicated about it because it was through an adoption agency, not my own, um, but one that has like been really impactful in a, in, in a harmful way for a lot of people. Um, so yeah, so I still feel really complicated about that, even though it did give me the opportunity to go back to Korea. And even though I did get the opportunity to meet my birth mother, which was a really, really important moment in my life. Um, and was was really like a chance happening. Like I, I didn't think it was gonna happen. The adoption agency, my adoption agency had found her, um, but I later learned that her and my birth father um, got married after they had me. And um, in Korea, there's a huge, huge, huge stigma of like being a, um, a solo pregnant woman, um, a single pregnant woman or an unmarried pregnant woman. Uh, and so at the time she was pregnant with me, um, she uh, kind of like hid out for a while before giving birth to me. Um, and like her and my and my birth father knew that I existed, but nobody else did. And then her and my birth father got married and they had three more children. Um, so like she was still kind of in this family unit of people who are like all like my blood relatives, but like don't know that I exist. Mm. So she was really hesitant about meeting me, which I super understood because if, you know, if I did something like show up at her door and like people wanted to know who I was, like that would completely change the course of her life. And like, I could just leave and go back to the US and she would have to like deal with all of that fallout, like as the person who made that decision. Um, But I think at the time it was also, it felt really important in the timing of my life, having been, having done work in the reproductive justice movement um, before going to meet her that I was able to like have a conversation with her about like what choice is and what choice is not. Um, and was able to tell her that like, I, I didn't have any anger towards her and I didn't blame her and I didn't hate her. Um, which were things that she was like very worried about. She was like very worried about those things and then very worried about kind of just my life and like what had happened in my life. So I was also able to, you know, like tell her all of those things of like, I am happy and like I went to graduate school (laughs) and and and, like those those types of things um you made her proud just yeah yeah making my birth mother who I had never my Korean birth mother who I had never met proud um with my graduate degrees uh but yeah was able to, to tell her that like because I did work where people were making like really tough decisions about 
their lives and their bodies related to pregnancy and birth and adoption and abortion that I understood that like it wasn't a real choice that she made that like it was one that society forced her into um and that and so in that way like I forgave her and I didn't hold animosity or, or hate like, towards her um which I think if I hadn't if I hadn't had that experience working in reproductive justice before I met her, I would have definitely been able to say like, Hey, I'm not mad at you. And Hey, like I knew you were doing like what you thought was best, but I wouldn't have been able to bring the nuance to it. Um, and like recognize that both to be able to say that to her, but also to be able to remind myself, um, that it wasn't anything like in particular about me. Um, and that it wasn't, uh, it didn't have to like connect to fears that I like still carry and insecurities that I still carry related to like abandonment and like family. Um, so yeah, that was a really, really beautiful moment um, in my life. And we uh, decided to not be in touch anymore because I think that there was a lot of processing that she was doing um, related to just the fact that like I exist <laughs> and like, how she would have to explain that to people. Um, but I'm really, really glad I got to meet her and tell her that, even if I don't ever get to see her again. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. It's it's incredibly powerful. And, and also because the adopting narrative is often underlooked, especially in the API uh, narratives that, that have grown more in grown above the surface, I, I should say. And hearing this story is so powerful, but it also connects to your work in reproductive justice and with different movements that you've been a part of. And I know that I kind of jumped that gun on uh, one of the questions, but uh, from being in these different movements over the years, uh, what would you say are some of your favorite moments, like the, the best learning experiences that you've gained from those movements, but also what were the lessons that you wish you had learned or that you wish someone had taught you mm -hmm. going into these movements? Yeah, <laughs> I wish I wish I had learned so many things <laughs> yeah. um, or that there were things that people had told me before I had to like learn them either by fucking up or just by like having to experience it and it having been shitty. Um, but one of the lessons that I wish I had learned and that I actually wish I had learned even before I was really doing social justice work, like back when I was still a student organizer um, on campus, like doing student government and, and my college campus and going through um, an undergraduate social work program was about boundaries, um, which because it's like something that I didn't learn <laughs> growing up. Um, and then something that I did that I didn't learn even as I was that I didn't learn in the right way, e even as I was being professionally trained as a social worker. Um, so like, you know, I definitely as someone who is being trained to like be a mental health practitioner and like work with communities in this really specific way. The boundary was like, don't tell people about your life and don't tell people where you live and don't give people your real cell phone number. So it's definitely between like you and like this, this client, like a very um, kind of particular way 
of like how social work developed as a profession that like you're always going to be like in a different community or class or identity as your client. Um, but it was never between, it was never boundaries between like yourself and your work, or it was never boundaries between like the different parts of who you are as a person. Um, or it wasn't even boundaries between like, how do you deal with like a difficult person just in your life? Um, or how do you like learn how to have an identity like outside of like being a professional helper? Um, <laughs> like that is still something I'm grappling with that like I've worked in um, in social justice and in some ways like in in service to someone else or a movement or to um, an organization like my whole adult life. So like that's something that I wish I had just known a little bit more about before, you know, my like mid thirties, because <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, I, it took me, it just took me a long time, a really, really long time to figure that out. Um, I think the other thing I wish I had learned was just kind of related to boundaries and also just kind of related to capitalism, um, is that you don't need to, um, you should you shouldn't have your job be like your biggest source of emotional fulfillment, um, which I think in like in the culture and, and type of society that we live in that like people are really, really, really encouraged to like have this strong emotional connection to their job, have have this sense of um, of ideas that like your coworkers are your family um, and that's, you know, your job can be fulfilling, but it should not be all that's fulfilling you. And it took me a long time to figure that out. Um, it, it, it's probably something that like lots of other people have learned. And I'm sure that like, I have so many creative people in my life and like people who do artistic work and, um, and all of that. And I feel like, yeah, those folks are, are people who have like figured it out that like they have, they have like creative outlets and other outlets for their lives. Um, but it's something that it, it also took me a really, really long time to learn because I was always working. Um, like there is a like a meme about Capricorns, which I'm on the Sagittarius Capricorn cusp, but also mm. like I'm a Capricorn moon and a Capricorn Venus. Um, <laughs> and there's this this meme about Capricorns that like were born as like 35 year old people. Um, and I like I think because not necessarily just because of astrology, but also just because of the childhood that I had, um, like definitely kind of graduated from high school and with this like very laser focus idea of like what I was going to do as a career, uh, how I was going to get there, how I was going to make my own money, um, which was also super tied to like the type of feminism that I like gathered around myself when I was in high school. Mm. So um, yeah, so I think that like making sure that your job is like not the center of your life. Um, and then also like figuring out who your people are and like having people that can, um, that can challenge you and, and like tell you when you're doing shit wrong, but also will like love you through your mess. Um, I know that that also took me a lot of time to figure out cause I didn't grow up with a ton of like friendships around me that I could figure out how to like model long lasting sustainable friendship um, that didn't have to, that what like wasn't connected to a job. Um, and it's something that I've been really, really fortunate to find in Chicago, um, which is like Chicago's one of the first places where I 
feel like I've been able to like bring my whole self and like be a whole person. Like I can be Asian and queer and a feminist and disabled, like, and like all of these other parts of my personality, like all at the same time. Um, and other places I've lived, like I've always had to like leave a little part of that behind. And usually it's like been my Asian-ness. Um, because I grew up in places that didn't have like large activist Asian communities um, in the same way that I've been able to find in Chicago. Um, so I would say, yeah, like being able to like finding your people and then like keeping your people, holding your people close um, is, is, has been really important. Um, and like I said, like all these lessons now, when I think about them, they feel like really obvious. And I'm sure that they are things that lots of people have figured out um, and that like I know that I came too late, but also I, I think that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not important. Mm. Yeah, and also another thing that um, I was thinking of as you were talking about um, the job that we do, also sometimes the job that we do, um, let's say if it's an immigration or, um, or connected to your identity in that case, the movement itself is so close to home, right? And, mm -hmm. and like, let's say if you, I've seen folks who are undocumented work for immigration organizations and their job is also advocating for themselves and their community. And oftentimes these you know, organizations can ultimately very much disappoint um, mm -hmm. the staff people who are directly connected to uh, these movements and um, the policies that are um, the advocacy work that these organizations are supposed to pull in. Uh, so yeah, I was thinking about that uh, on a deeper level too, because it also, you see so much burnout in nonprofit, you see a lot of turnover. Mm -hmm. And what are the best ways that nonprofit organizations and grass grassroots movement groups can do to encourage and practice self-care and healthy self-accountability within their staff and volunteers? Ah, that's such a big question. I know. <laughs> I know it is. I can't expect yeah. you to you know, be the expert on that. But, um, but maybe from your own experience, if you had to fill out a survey from to one of your old employers, oh. be like, <laughs> well, I, I might... Think, I think I might yeah. go into a different territory there. but <laughs> Yeah, so I think one of the things that is, is important and that I see, especially now as someone who is funding organizations that are working in social movement building, is that like self-care is one piece, but it's actually not going to be enough. Um, that it's, it's really important that we have the resources to take care of ourselves and to um, like engage in things that are not on the clock that bring us pleasure and happiness. That's like a huge, huge part of like feeling whole as a person. But also like if we are being forced to do all of that within a culture in the society and within organizations and institutions that are constant, are regularly like not supporting us being able to do that, it's like we're not necessarily going to like fully move forward <laughs> as a people. Like we are not we may not get to a place where we feel like we're going to be free so i think what's also needed is um community care and spaces of community care so whether that's within an organization or an institution creating a space where it's actually um 
possible for people to heal um, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and like where we're not engaging in practices where people are just having to like parade their trauma out all the time um, and where it's like really extractive, um, where people are like utilizing their stories in really powerful ways rather than their story just being taken from them um, in order to like meet a goal that like they themselves may not have had any input in or may like not have been like fully invested in. So I think that's that's a huge thing is like having the resources to be able to um, to do that. And then I think also like looking at our larger culture and being able to create um, like cultural community care. Um, so communities where people have access to mental health care. Yeah. So, you know, going to therapy and engaging in therapy and engaging in like mental health modalities can be a form of self-care. But if you're living in a, in a geographic space or like a cultural space where there's a ton of stigma against mental health care or you like literally can't access it because of where it's located or your lack of health insurance or they don't take your health insurance or they take your health insurance, but then it's like a $75 copay. Like that's not self-care. Oh. Um, you can't engage in self-care because the community care system doesn't exist. Um, the same has to do with like the ways that other, like all of the other ways that we interact with our bodies as individuals and then interact with each other. Um, so like restorative and transformative justice, um, spaces where people are not always going to be expected to like engage in paid work in order to financially support themselves. Like what would that look like <laughs> if, if like our dream jobs were actually not having jobs? Um, like I always, I always that, like, dream of that every day. I know my dream <laughs> job is actually not jobbing. Like I don't want a like I have dreams of like things I would want to engage in and spend my time doing, but like very few of them are like jobs. Um, and yeah, would love to, to see a society and a community where like we didn't actually have to like work for money. We just like all shared <laughs> all the resources that we have because they're plentiful and abundant. Um, so yeah, I think about that distinction and think about, especially in my job, think about the ways that um, being in a role as a funder that I can help support organizations and communities to have that um, and have it be seen as like absolutely necessary to the growth of social movements. So not just like what can a campaign win, but like how can we take care of the people who are doing that work um, so that they can get what they want for their, for their communities um, while not feeling completely uh, like extracted from in the process. Yeah, and also, um, you've also been very vocal about your own experiences with um, with your own disabilities. Uh, given the need for better awareness on disability justice, uh, what do you feel needs to happen for organizations and or leaders to create better spaces to be accommodating and inclusive to the needs of those who have disabilities? Yeah, so um, I feel I feel really lucky that I have been able to um, to work with and to meet so many people who are disabled, who are chronically ill, who have gone through mental health challenges um, in the same ways that I have or in different ways that I have. Because it those are the sorts of things that like people existing, like the exist literal existence of people um, who 
can share those experiences, it helps me feel less alone in the world. And like, I think that, um, like I, I tell people that a lot, like when they share really vulnerable things like in person or in social media, I always like to say like, thank you for sharing that. Um, or just thank you for being like you sharing that you existing helps me feel a little bit less alone in the world. Um, I think that disability and being disabled, um, being chronically ill, living with um, like mental health challenges um, and like being able, thinking about what's needed in order to do that successfully also comes up in like butts up against all my feelings about capitalism <laughs> and like the ways that like capitalism is like super, super racialized and like the history of capitalism has been super, super racialized. Um, like it's not just all about class. It's actually like been about race in the way that like racism fed into classism. Um, and how, also how those things are very, very gendered. Um, so, you know, ableism, which is like discrimination, prejudice, oppression of disabled, sick, uh, mentally ill people, um, is related to how, like, how much people can produce and like how productive, how they're seen as being productive or non-productive members of society. Um, and all of, like a lot of this like political language and political education I've learned from reading folks um, like Mia Mingus and yes. Patty Byrne and um, yeah. yeah, so uh, so like thinking about ableism and disability in that way of uh, like what has it what has it meant to evaluate people based on how much we think they can produce, how much they think they are worth. Um, it is it, it shifts a little bit than how we uh, address the problem of something being inaccessible. So um, the disability rights movement, um, which has been so important and has made a lot of buildings more accessible, has increased um, healthcare accessibility, has increased mental healthcare accessibility, um, that the activism that passed things like the ADA, like all of that is so, so, so important um, in order to humanize, because it humanizes um, us as disabled people. And also um, going a step further into disability justice, we think about all of the ways that, that disability and being disabled interacts with race and gender and class and sexuality um, so that people are seen as like more or less desirable or more or less um, worthy in society. Um, in addition to the fact that um, the way that like we will all get free in, in a way that includes disabled um, and sick folks is actually not going to be through, uh, is, it's not going to be through asserting our independence, but about creating interdependent networks of care so that everybody feels um, cared for, so that everybody feels connected to people. Um, so that nobody feels alone and left behind. Um, and so, yeah, so that's like, that's disability justice versus like a disability equality or disability rights mm -hmm. framework. And thinking about the fact that uh, within disability, that like I consider myself, I will identify as disabled and consider mm -hmm. myself disabled because um, I am disabled by the world. So, um, when I am walking with my walker or my cane and come up to a set of stairs 
in a space where there is no elevator or no ramp or maybe like not an escalator, which has been really wonky for my walker, a little bit less wonky for um, my cane. But it's not that I need to like go get my legs replaced. <laughs> like that would be uh, like a very kind of medical approach to disability um, and one where like I and my body is the problem versus like the fact that these steps are here without any way to, for me to like get up these steps, I'm being disabled like by the built environment. Um, yeah. So that's, that's a different approach to like thinking about disability that like the problem is actually not my body. The problem is uh, like the, the building itself. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think about, I think about those things too, um, when I'm thinking about what's needed in order for us to um, be more accessible and be more inclusive. Um, it's just thinking about how can we um, create spaces and um, spaces within our organizations, within our institutions, within like our larger built environment, like the public square, quote unquote, um, where we realize that like the thing that needs to change is actually like the structure, um, not the person. Um, and it's it's not on the person to have to change. It's like on the structure to have to shift so that it can work for the person. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about the topic of disability and what you just shared. And uh, uh, I'm a caregiver to my mother who had a stroke seven plus years ago. And oftentimes she has to be in a wheelchair uh, when I have to take her to shopping or uh, going to different uh, places that require additional walking, right? And so one of the frustrations that I've noticed is when I go to an Aldi's, Aldi's does not have a, an electric shopping cart. Mm. It's very frustrating mm -hmm. to me. Uh, it's also even more frustrating for my mom uh, because even though my mom could walk, she walks very, very gingerly. And my mom still finds a way to push through even though I've told her we can go to uh, fresh, fresh times like across the street, mm -hmm. Aldi's is a more affordable grocery store. But I also think about how these lack of accessible spaces affect um, people with disabilities, mental health, and how it further triggers, it further um, affects their mental well-being. Because I've been in a lot of spaces with my mom where I've seen stairs. Mm -hmm. I've seen um, times when the elevator wasn't working. I have been in situations where um, there's only one handicapped parking spot mm -hmm. in a place of 200 uh, parking spaces, right? So it's very frustrating and I've been seeing how that has affected my mom at times and how it starts to make her not want to go out and so sharing that um sharing that experience what you just brought up is a, also a reminder of the impact that it has on on folks with disabilities if we are not accommodating if we're not creating spaces I mean like I know that there's always events, and I believe it's always important to have events that show, are you wheelchair accessible? Is it a wheelchair mm -hmm. accessible event, right? Are there stairs? Are there elevators? Um, is there a translator? Is there an interpreter? Those 
make a huge difference. And mm-hmm. the last thing you want to have is a person who is unable to attend the event and they don't find out until they arrive. And it's right. Exactly. Like, like it's, it's so exhausting. And I'm sure that, you know, like trying to navigate something for your mother who is like chronically ill and like recovering, and, like going through kind of what she's gone through medically. It's like, so she's cognitively <laughs> trying to figure things yes. out in a country that was like, not the, the like the culture country that she was raised in and like trying to do it in a way when she's like yeah when she's also navigating physical disability like that's just it takes so much energy um and there's been so many critiques that i've read and also that i've given like of uh just how unhelpful it is to say something is ada accessible um right. which ada the americans with disabilities act um required that like building certain buildings and like also in your workspace needed to have um, accommodations or ways for people in wheelchairs to be able to access them. Mm-hmm. So uh, if someone says like, oh, a space is ADA accessible, it literally means that like there is a way for a wheelchair to like get in the door somehow, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't say anything about like if that door is like all the way around the back. Um, if there's going to be parking where you can like use the placard um, that you've gotten like from uh, the the DMV, um, it doesn't say anything about like how much space there is between chairs or if you're gonna if there is even um, a bathroom that you'll be able to use because sometimes you know like a bathroom could fit a wheelchair inside but like okay. you can't get down the hall. And also like being in a wheelchair, using a locker, even using a cane, like those are not the only ways that people will be disabled. Um, So yeah, like your point about having interpreters or um, having information in other languages or um, having uh, like having activities and pre-planning activities that are going to work for people who um, are are neurodiverse in different ways and experience stimulus in different ways. Like these are all the ways that um, that you can think about disability in addition to like chronic illness and like are people going to need um, like cushions or seats in order to like help them manage chronic pain? Um, do we need to have like a certain number of chairs so that people can sit down? Does it need to be like a low scent, low chemical, scent free environment? Um, there's so many things that like go beyond like what um, the what a law like the Americans with Disabilities Act um, required, even though like th- that was a really important law um, and has been really impactful for lots of people, including myself, who needed um, who ne- who needed those sorts of um, uh, yeah who who like needed uh, medical accommodations and health accommodations at work. Um, there's so many different things that we can think about to create those spaces yeah um and i think about it too so like one of the ways that i explain it in um in in a class that i used to teach um about lgbtq social work is uh like thinking about the (laughs) x-men which i'm like always thinking about the x-men but (laughs) uh you know when uh so in x-men the last stand which i know is like People have have like definite feelings about the fact that that was like not necessarily the best X-Men movie. Um, But, uh, you know, it was a movie where like there were 
they discovered like this or they developed this cure like for being a mutant and so um some people were like very excited about having the cure because it meant that like they could change their body in order to fit in to the society that already existed while other folks um were like don't make me take that cure like this is who i am and actually the fact that you think i don't fit in means that there's a problem with society um and i think about that in terms of like the different ways that i had already talked about like how people see disability um that like that mutation was like a thing that happened in nature the mutation that created mutants which like some of whom became the x-men and then some of whom you know were not the x-men uh but like the mutantism was like something natural that happened in this science and like in people's bodies it wasn't necessarily something that was wrong it was just different um and so like having a cure or being able to take it away wasn't necessarily what was needed it was actually like creating a society that was going to recognize that like everyone who was a mutant like w had had the right to exist mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing that analogy <laughs> and really um so i wanted to change change directions here so dan b season is already upon us i know yes, you're big i am NBA so fan. excited to talk about the nba season because <laughs> i almost i almost never get to talk about basketball <laughs> um yes i am very ready to talk about the nba season okay what do we what it so what do you want my thoughts on the um, NBA season i will say that kobe white <laughs> is looking really good by the way yo kobe white has had an excellent start to the nba season yeah. so uh uh, I will, I will say for folks, folks listening to this podcast who don't know me, um, I went to graduate school and also worked, um, for a little bit at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, um, and was there in 2009 when, in two, well, I was there in 2008 when they almost won their championship, and then I was there in 2009 when they did win their championship, um, and actually, like, that living through that experience like as someone who was connected to undergraduate students on that campus as well as being a graduate student and just getting free tickets to all the home games like made me a huge sports fan um and i eventually became an nba fan because my favorite tar heel started going into the nba so um i yeah my, my life in Chapel hill is like what made me what made me a sports fan um but who was your, yeah. favorite, who was your favorite tar heel at that time or uh, still my, you mean my favorite Tar Heel in the NBA? Yes. My favorite, so my favorite Tar Heel in the NBA, which anyone who follows me on social media will know, is Harrison Barnes, um, who I call HB40, um, which was also for anybody who does like reproductive health rights and justice work in Illinois, was also um, the bill number for our bill for reproductive health and access. Oh, wow, the irony. Yeah. I know. It's like, it's funny, right? Well, uh, <laughs> I have a I have a friend who like used to work in like an Asian and um, an Asian American like civil rights organization in the city who would like make fun of me that I call Harrison Barnes HB40 because he would always say like Joy that sounds like a legislative bill number which you know he was correct um, but yeah so Harrison Barnes is uh, is my favorite Tar Heel in the NBA um, who he's a gold medalist as well as an NBA champion. Um, and he with the Golden State so, Warriors before uh, Kevin Durant. Classy guy. He got traded.
from the from the Dallas Mavericks to the Sacramento Kings in the middle of a game. And, like, he knew what was going to happen, but he still played the game. He was, like, sitting on the bench when the trade came through. They, like, put it down in, like, the scrolly thing and, like, said that, like, he, yeah, like, he got traded in the middle of his in the middle of the game, but he still played. Classy guy. Anyway, so Kobe White, who you brought up at the beginning, he is uh, the newest rookie for the Chicago Bulls, who have not been looking great the past few years. Um, but he had a, that's an understatement. He yes. had an excellent uh, year that he played at UNC. He had a great summer league, um, and he's having a really good start to his season so far. Like he is emerging as like a really um, key part of their offense. So I'm really excited for him and. Vince Carter, who's also and still in the NBA, like he's been in the he's like NBA. Forty-two forever. years old, I believe. Yeah. yeah, he's like in his twenty-second season, and then of course, like Danny Green, who has had an incredible career, went from being the sixth man on that two thousand nine um, championship team to like being a two-time NBA champion for the Spurs and then the Raptors, and is like now a starter for the Lakers. So it's just wild to like have seen his trajectory because a number of his a number of the other Tar Heels in that draft class were not as successful in the NBA. Um, like Ty Lawson, who actually was my favorite player coming out of that year, um, who just had a really kind of sad career trajectory that was greatly impacted by addiction. And then Tyler Hansborough, who plays overseas now, um, as well as Wayne Ellington, who um, I think is playing for the Nets, um, had played for the Heat for a while. Um so, yeah, Tar Heels in the NBA. I love them. I love them all. What um, about this other team in North Carolina? No, we're not going to talk about that team. Um, <laughs> it's for Duke. Anybody, yeah, I was going to say, it's it's Duke. Uh, we're not going to talk about Duke. Uh, I am interested to see what happens in <laughs> in Zion Williamson's career. I'm definitely interested in seeing what ha- what's going to happen to Zion Williamson's career. I'll be interested to see what happens to list. him too. I know he, like he had. Uh, I just think back to uh, the game at Cameron Indoor, where he busted open his shoe. Yeah. Obama was like sitting behind the bench, and like there's that gif of him being like, "His shoe broke." Um, but like he broke a shoe, he was injured. Then he started in summer league. He got injured in summer league. Mm-hmm. Then he just started playing for the Pelicans <laughs> down in New Orleans because he was their number one draft pick, and he got injured again. And I just like he's like he's a really really incredible athlete. Like I don't want to see him injured the same way that I'm just like JJ Reddick could totally be injured. Um, oh, but. Gosh. <laughs> Like, I don't want to see him injured. Uh, but, yeah, I just want him to catch a break. Um, yeah, so I'm interested to see what he's – kind of interested to see what he's going to do. I'm kind of interested to see what um, Kyrie Irving's going to do in Brooklyn. He's off to a really good start, And shit has just, like, shifted. Like, the entire NBA is just wild. Um, and especially coming off, like, such a strong WNBA season. Like, the WNBA was, like, hype as fuck this year. And they're in their offseason doing um, CBA negotiations like the Players Association is. And so I'm really interested to see what happens um, with that. Um, because, you know, obviously, like, as a season ticket holder, like, I want to see the WNBA play next year. But also, like, oh. you know, if they end up, like, having a walkout, like, I will be behind them 100% because, like, they deserve more than what they're getting. Um 
But yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention about the NBA season that I'm super, super pumped for, other than just seeing all these shakeups, like the East doesn't look the same. The West doesn't look the same. Everything is like, what is going on? Like, I maybe like the Celtics now. I don't know how that happened. But I'm super <laughs> excited for like women who are who are in the NBA right now. So yeah. like Swid Cash, who actually like used to play for Chicago's WNBA team, like she is in the front office in New Orleans right now, which is super exciting for the Pelicans. Um, and I think it's up to like ten. There's been ten full time female coaches in the in the NBA. Um, which one of the one of the people that I'm like most excited for, which is why I'm like, do I kind of like the Celtics now? Is Carol Lawson, who was one of my favorite. Um, commentators like play-by-play analysts um, for the WNBA she is an assistant coach for the Celtics now and then of course you know like Becky Hammond who's like an who's an assistant coach for the Spurs I love her um Candace Parker just got hired as an analyst Uh, I know she's she's so great she's like the hometown girl well she's like your hometown girl because she's from Page County she's like not from Chicago specifically um but she's an incredible player. Uh, I was so mad when uh, Lisa Leslie her, got a statue. When her feller, when her Davis. fellow players like voted her the most overrated, I was like, Candace Parker is literally a WNBA champion. Um, but yeah, you just mentioned Lisa yeah. Leslie yeah. is to be the first woman to get a statue outside the Staples Center. Like that just broke today. That's so exciting. Um, and like. More WNBA players have been, like, doing off-season stuff with their NBA teams. Sue Bird, who is with Seattle, was has been, like, doing some stuff. Christy Tolliver, who's, like, a badass point guard for Washington, has been working with the Wizards. Um, and I was watching the WNBA Finals this year, which was uh, the Washington Mystics versus the Connecticut Sun. And people were making, like, a huge, huge deal about the fact that Um, Like Bradley Beal and John Wall um, were at the games and one of them like had asked permission to like stay behind from when their team had traveled and they they would like fly out the next morning so that they could stay and go (laughs) to the WNBA game. Um, But Rebecca Lobo was talking to Bradley Beal at halftime and he was saying about how um, it was so inspirational for him to like see the WNBA team in Washington get to the finals because it's something that like him and John Wall have not been able to achieve yet and how like it was motivating. Probably won't anytime soon. I know. I want to be like, mm, I like, mm, I don't know. But uh, yeah, he was talking about how it was so inspirational. To, it was like inspiring them as the NBA team to work harder so that they could achieve what the WNBA team had. Yeah. Um, and I was like, yes, like, of course, <laughs> like, yeah. let, like, let that drive you and like, let Chrissy Tolliver be, you know, like your point guard and shooting guard inspiration, like working one on one with you. And uh, like, uh, of course, you're going to be such a huge fanboy because like, that's your coach. <laughs> so so I'm, say... I'm most excited for like women related mm-hmm. to the to the NBA this year, because I know, you know, everything else is going to like, it's going to happen. Um and I don't, I can't even predict who's going to go to the finals, but like, Me it's a, either. I'm still thinking yeah. about it. And actually, uh, about a week ago, I drew the ire of you because, you sure I, did. because I said that Giannis is a little overrated. And to be honest with you, I think he can end up being a great player eventually. And he's what do you mean a great 
great Oops. player eventually. He was the MVP last year, Randy. Well, I mean. What do you mean a I'm great still... player eventually? He's an incredible player now. I, mean, <laughs> I guess. I, I'm just saying that that Elf, Elf, that El Horford block was pretty epic, if I recall. And Kawhi Leonard kind of shutting him down and. Yeah, that was, like, two times. Like, Al Horford is also a great player. Kawhi Leonard is, like, one of the top five players in the league. Like, some people are going to get blocked. Like, LeBron James has been blocked before. Like, yeah, people have been blocked. It doesn't mean that they're not great players. And I'm not even saying that Giannis is, like, the best player playing in the WNBA right now. But I'm not going to go around saying that he is overrated. Like, He's he was the MVP. <laughs> like I mean, he earned he earns that. I mean, if Kawhi stayed healthy, I think he would have easily gotten the MVP, right? Kawhi was healthy. Kawhi helped the game, WNBA in championship. I mean, <laughs> Kawhi Leonard had like you know he only he only played like sixty games because I know that he was still resting his uh, knee. Uh, I I'm also, I have, I have very, like, I have a lot of feelings about the MVP, because I think it ends up being the, like, the, it's the, like, offensive player of the year award, because there's MVP, and then there's defensive player of the year award. I think that there should be MVP, the person whose presence to their team is actually the most impactful for their team. And then there should be the offensive player of the year, who's, like, you know, the stats leader. And the defensive player of the year. I have said this. I have said this on Twitter. Like the WNBA, my WNBA, like Twitter friends believe very strongly in that. Um, Because if you look at, okay, who's the most valuable player to their team? It may or may not have anything to do with statistics. So like Draymond Green is probably not going to be somebody who's going to be in an MVP conversation. Might be in, like, a finals MVP conversation. The Warriors gets the finals. But, like, it's not necessarily going to be in a league-wide conversation, but has a huge impact for his team. Um, Although that defense for the Warriors ain't looking so good. So um, I think Draymond's got a little bit of uh, work cut out for him. Well... I think I think there's a lot going on with the Warriors, which like I am also I like considered myself a Warriors fan when Harrison Barnes was playing for them, and I've told people that I'm probably the only one besides Harrison Barnes' mom and his wife that was like feeling eh about the Warriors after he left. Um, but yeah, I mean they moved. Like why did they have to move? It was it had to do with like greed and gentrification. Uh, Clay Thompson is out. They lost Kevin Durant. They lost yeah. JaVale McGee. Like, all, yeah. So it's just been, for the Warriors, I don't know what's going to happen for them. I think it's, people. I mean, people say that about the Spurs, too. They're like, oh, the Spurs are, like, not doing so great. But well, it's like, they the quietly get to, like, number three. Yeah, they're always well, in the conversation somehow, you know. And, I, I mean, watching, that's what I love about Pop. I was watching an NBA preseason show, and it was Paul Pierce. And then I can't remember who the other person was. It was either, um, it was either Jay, Jay, no, it was either Jay Williams or um, Chauncey Billups, who was like on, you know, it's like the TNT or ESPN, whatever. Um, And so whoever, whoever was there besides Paul Pierce, like didn't even predict that the Spurs are going to make the playoffs. And I was like, come the fuck on. I was like, the Spurs are an incredibly reliable team. They're going to make like the, the playoffs. Spurs, you know? They may not. They're not going to do it in a flashy way. They're not going to do it in a loud way. They might not, 
get like better than six or seven, that's fine. They're going to fucking make the playoffs. Like, don't tell me that the Pelicans are going to make the playoffs and that the Spurs are are not going to make the playoffs. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, I haven't figured out who's going to be in the NBA Finals. It's going to be just... Yeah. What are you excited about for the NBA season this year? uh, The Clippers. I'm actually really excited to see how Kawhi and Paul George, Pat Beverly, are going to come together. I'm also very curious to see um, how LeBron is going to be doing in this supposed bounce back year that he needs to have and his chemistry with Anthony Davis. Um, I was wondering where... Andre Iguodala is going to turn up because he still hasn't been traded. Um, can Joel Embiid be healthy? Can Bobby Simmons hit an open shot? You mean Ben he, Simmons? I'm oh, sorry. Sorry about that. Ben Simmons. I, I want I'm, good things to happen for the Sixers this year. I, I do too. I mean, I do like what, um, what, the, uh, uh, what the 76ers have. The Celtics are a really, like, they have the talent, but I don't. I can't. I don't know how they're gonna uh, mesh. Well, I mean, I think it'll be better than when they had Kyrie versus. Um, uh, well, it's, they're gonna be better not having Kyrie because of what Kyrie did to that team last year. But it's still kind of in flux. Um, I'm just excited for Kemba Walker. Like I used to watch yeah. him play in college, and like he was he was such a, an incredible asset for UConn that I'm excited to like see him. like see him be invested in the way that like Michael Jordan did not invest in him when he was when he was down in Charlotte clearly not clearly not but yeah so the NBA is gonna be a real crapshoot I mean it's exciting to me because it's it's gonna have its twists and turns unlike the last couple of years when it's been dominated by the Warriors and the Cavaliers uh so yeah I'm interested to see what the developments are and seeing how the, the these transactions over the offseason is going to work itself out throughout the season and into the playoffs. So I'm definitely going to be intrigued. Uh, so the last question I have is, you know, we've had such a very, such a very, you know, a powerful conversation you know, <laughs> talking about movements and the adopting narrative disabilities and and so forth now what would you tell your 22 year old self that's about oh, ready to graduate from college oh uh well so i graduated from college when i was 21 um yeah i turned i turned 21 in like my my last semester of college um so when i was 22 i was out of college. So do you want me to like think about how about like right after graduation? Yeah, yeah. right after graduation. Uh, so I would definitely tell myself and this is still something that I am constantly telling myself is that like you can have fun. Like you can enjoy this and you can enjoy your life. Cuz I was so I was really really focused on becoming financially independent um from my parents mm-hmm. and that really translated like very hardcore into like starting a job immediately. So like I didn't take any time off. Um, I like I graduated from school and then like mon- the Monday afterwards like started a full time started a full time job while still having a part time job, um, and then ended up like leaving that full time job like the next year and worked three part time jobs, two which were like social work related and one at Starbucks so I could get health insurance, um, 
which meant that like in my 20s, I was like constantly working like all the time um, to like pay my bills and and all of that. And yeah, I would tell myself to like have more fun. to like not take things as seriously um, to like spend a lot more time with my friends rather than spending so much time working. Um, and to remember that like it's okay to like do a thing for myself too. That I, I didn't necessarily always have to be like doing things for other people. Um, which I feel like all of those are lessons that like I'm still regularly telling myself, although I've gotten a little bit better about it. Um, about like not working as much, about like investing more time in like my my, my like my friends and community relationships. Um, and yeah, like being able to enjoy life a little bit. <laughs> uh, no, like I'm so glad to have known you the last uh, six and a half years now, I believe. And just seeing the remarkable growth and just the wisdom that you've gained Aww. along the way too. And I've been Thank just you. really honored to be friends with you and learn so much about your work, your experiences and, and the empathy that you carry in these movement spaces. Um, it, it's just been very beautiful to watch. And I'm so glad that you've shared uh, so much profound you know, wisdom in this conversation. And I know that it hasn't been an easy path for you, but I, I, I gotta say just what you've shared is really so important. And, you know, I'm pretty sure anybody who listens to this is going to, you know, see themselves in your stories because it's, there's so many intersections that at play, but there's so there's a lot of connections that you've made um, the last couple of years and the work that you've done. And it's just been really beautiful to watch. So, yeah, I just want to at least acknowledge that, but also know that you've Aww. been really awesome. And Thank yes, you uh, so much, Randy. That really and, means a lot. Thank you for saying and, all of and that. And we may have our disagreements <laughs> every now and then. Mostly uh, about basketball. <laughs> about basketball. Maybe once in a while about music, although not too often. But uh, uh, so, no, it's been great. It's been just great uh, talking with you. And yeah, best of wishes to you in, uh, in, in your journey. And I'm certain to be uh, watching you uh, from the VIP section. So uh, of, of course you will be in the VIP section. I, I expect nothing less. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for yes. asking me to be part of this project. And I, I'm really excited for you and for this project. And um, I know I've already told you this before, but like you continue to be um, just like a really great example of like somebody who uh, like approaches their life in a really fearless way. And it's like really awesome to like watch you do that. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we'll talk again, but thank mm -hmm. you again for a wonderful evening of conversations and going over these very uh and going over these layering topics and yeah. it's it, it, it's <laughs> mind-blowing about how you talked about them and it's I'm, i have to sit there and process after this is done because it's it's mind-blowing to me and and it's incredibly beautiful too uh thanks randy all right well take care joy have a good one okay bye-bye Thank you.
Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Thank you.